0: Beloved, if you were to pick one word to stand out, to differentiate between biblical Christianity and all the other religions, all the other belief systems of the world, what would be the one word that you would pick? Uh, One might, uh, certainly on good ground, say Jesus. Jesus. Uh, Because we know Jesus is the Son, is the purpose of all of creation. He is our Savior. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. But one might, and to be sure, many Eastern religions and many primitive religions have no concept of Jesus. So that in and of itself would uh, differentiate. But what do you do with, for example, when you go to Islam? And Islam recognizes a Jesus. They would say they give honor to Jesus as a prophet. Or you can think of the Jehovah Witnesses. They ascribe to a Jesus that they would define as uh, Michael the Archangel. Or our LDS friends, uh, who I understand believe that Jesus is a spiritual brother of Lucifer. Or Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics believe in the deity of Jesus. They understand the biblical doctrine of uh, the Trinity. They believe in the virgin birth. So what might be another word that would go even beyond Jesus, if we were to pick one, that would differentiate? And perhaps a good word is the word faith. The case could be made for faith. Faith, faith alone, sola fide, beloved, is the shibboleth. It is the dividing line between biblical Christianity and every other belief system in the world salvation by faith alone is at the heart of the gospel to be sure it must be faith in the biblical Jesus to be sure but beloved faith is at the center of the heartbeat of God's counsel and testimony on his entire purpose of glorifying Jesus glorifying the son please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. It's interesting, in this magnificent epistle that the author, pastor, preacher wrote to this group of Jewish believers, the word faith we'll see four times. We've seen four times, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 37. Uh, we'll see it again one time in chapter 13, and we see the word faith 27 times from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, through chapter 12, verse 2. Beloved, hear the word of God as I read, and I want to slow down here a little bit as we launch into this epic chapter 11, the so-called hall of faith in the annals and counsel of God. We want to make sure we set the stage well. So I'm going to read chapter 10, verse 38 through chapter 12, verse 2, and listen, be on the lookout for the word faith, even as I read in your hearing. This is the word of God, Hebrews 10 and verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval by faith. We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive foreign inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob as fellow heirs of the same promise." he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand of that is, by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is... They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. And he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure "...ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover." and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were destroyed. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved, this is the Word of God read in your presence. Please attend to it as such. Beloved, Hebrews 11 is like an avalanche, it starts small and then it picks up momentum and massive energy. This is a literary masterpiece. This is a song of faith. If one might think of 1 Corinthians 13 as the primary treatise, the primary discourse on love, Hebrews 11 would be the counterpart, primary treatise and discourse on faith. And What we'll look at here this morning, our texts are the first three verses, really the first two with a just light dipping into verse three. What we see here is the nature of faith and the beginning of faith. Very briefly on the beginning of faith in verse three, more next Lord's Day. Because basically, we want to understand more and more what is faith and where does it begin? Namely, the faith that saves. Not the normal, natural kind of faith. All human beings operate by faith. Every human being, when they get in a taxi, when they get in an airplane, when they take a pill that was given them by the pharmacist, the list goes on, is taking a step of faith. It's not that kind of faith. It's a supernatural, true, logical, reasonable, rational, life-saving, soul-saving faith that is a gift of God that is a subject of Discussion. So, in the first two verses, what is the nature of faith? And what the author does is he gives in verse one a definition of what faith is, and then in verse two, he gives a description of what faith does. And I just mean faith, not your faith or my faith, but faith in and of itself. To be sure, we are part of the equation. That's why God wrote his Bible, wrote his word to us, but this is faith in and of itself. So, Firstly, a definition of what faith is in verse 1. And it's interesting, when we look at this definition, it's not a definition that we would expect that we might see of faith in a dictionary or even in a systematic theology. His statement in verse 1 is very straightforward, and it's also somewhat deceptively simple in appearance, but it is massive and powerful. He begins, look at the text, he says, "...now." Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When we see that first word, now, it ties us back and draws us back to the end of chapter 10, where we may remember, you may remember, that this author, pastor, preacher, out of his pastor shepherd's heart, he gave, closing of chapter 10, words of exhortation and encouragement, namely to endure. For example, 10 verse 32 He said, remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And then in verse 36, you have need of endurance. So you endured before, you need to keep on enduring. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Keep on keeping on. You have need of endurance, verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Beloved, dear Friend, patient endurance to the end was the issue then. It is the issue now, and it's always the issue. Beloved, when you enter into a season of trouble, endurance is your demonstration. It is the outworking of faith. Not perfect endurance, but an abiding endurance that is strengthened by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Beloved, God's encouragement and exhortation to you and to me today is that there are many things that may entrap us. There are many things that may oppose us. There are many things that may hinder us. We must continue to the end. And we can ask the question coming back to the text and the subject here in our passage, who is it that endures to the end? When we think of The New Testament, there are many different titles and labels and ways in which God describes his children. His children is one of them. We are the saved. Uh, We are Christians. Only three times, but we are called Christians three times in the New Testament. We're called the elect eight times. We are called, more to the point here, believers. We are believers. For example, Acts 5, verse 14, good Dr. Luke wrote, more believers in the Lord Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, verse 7, said to the church in Thessalonica, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, Timothy, young, godly Timothy's mother, is described as a believer by Luke in Acts 16 verse 1. He says, "Behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. Paul describes Abraham. In Galatians three verse nine, he says, "Abraham, comma the believer." Now, the point here is it's the same root word that is faith is the one, that describes you and me as believers. We are believers, we are men and women of faith that defines who we are. But, back to the definition of faith itself in the text, he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The word assurance, it's hypostasis, is the Greek word. This is a word with incredibly rich meaning. It has both an objective meaning, essence, substance. In fact, the King James Version says, translates this as faith is a substance of things hoped for. It describes the firm foundation, even the incredible, beautifully rich song that we sang just a little bit ago. Jesus, our firm foundation that finds its root. The firm foundation is hypostasis, this assurance, this substance and essence of our faith. It describes a title deed, an evidence of ownership, a guarantee. That's the objective aspect or nuance of this word. But there's also a subjective uh, nuance, an element of it, where it can be translated as it is here in the New American Standard and the ESV as assurance or confidence. It's interesting, this word, hypostasis, appears 20 times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, It appears 20 times, translating 12 different Hebrew words. That gives you an idea of the richness of this word that is used here. It appears five times in the New Testament, twice in 2 Corinthians, where in both those instances it was more on the subjective context, so it's it's, uh, translated as confidence. It then appeared the next time in Hebrews 1, verse 3, where you read the words describing the sun, he is the radiance of his glory. The sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature, of his substance, of his essence. And then it appears the second to last time, in chapter three fourteen, where the author says, "We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end." So. All that to say this word is used in sometimes in an objective, in a subjective sense previously. It's used once in Hebrews 1, 3 in the more objective. So what are we to understand it here? Beloved, I think in this final appearance of this rich word in the pages of Scripture, God doesn't have this for us as an either or. It's a both and. It is both the objective sense of substance, the real essence of our salvation and the things we hope for and the subjective sense of the absolute confident assurance that you and I have in Christ in the promise of God that goes all the way back to the garden of Eden beloved your faith gives substantiating reality to the things that you hope for and by the way I would be derelict if I didn't mention this word hypostasis that's the root word for the English word hypostatic And you may be familiar with church history in the early council of the the church when early Christian fathers were defending a biblical understanding of Jesus Christ, who is and always has been, who is the son, the second member of the Trinity. He always was, is, and always will be eternally God. And in his carnation, he is also human. 100% God, 100% man. One person, two natures. And the hypostatic union, $64 terminology there, comes from this word that describes the union of the divine nature of the Son and the human nature of the Son without change, without confusion, without division, or without separation. So again, incredibly rich word. He is the substance, the absolute certainty of the things that we hope for. And beloved, even hope flowing from the heart of the pastor that wrote this sermonic epistle. Hope is a powerful theme in Hebrews. For example, chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, you may remember, you may be familiar with. The author there said, in order that we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have, As an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Beloved, faith and hope, in fact, in Hebrews, faith and hope are in some ways interchangeable in this epistle. And it was somewhat similar for the Apostle Paul as well. For example, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. There's one body and one spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So hope and faith are tied together. And in the same way, there is a massive contrast between the kind of supernatural abiding certain substantial faith that's being described here and just the natural faith. So also there is a massive chasm <coughs> between the hope that is based on the promise of God and just a wishful thinking kind of hope. Uh, The commentator Hughes had this to say about the latter. He said, quote, For man without faith, hope is cumbered with uncertainty and cramped by unpredictability. It's retarded by fears as well as spurred by longings of human subjectivity, end quote. And beloved, that is in massive contrast to the man of faith or the woman of faith. For us, hope is sure and substantial because it's founded on the objective reality, again, of the immutable promises of God who cannot, does not, and will not ever lie. And what we see here as we finish out chapter one, or excuse me, verse one, is that God buttresses, he strengthens our sure and substantial hope with even more certainty. He says the conviction of things not seen. That is, faith is also the conviction, the evidence, the test, the proof of things not seen. Uh, The word translated conviction is taken from a courtroom type of it's interesting, the new, most of the modern translations, NASB, ESV, others, translate these two words as assurance and conviction. King James translated the translators, translated them as substance, and this other one as evidence. And again, this is a both and the subjective and the objective, the absolute reality outside of us of the certainty of salvation based on this faith and the evidence, the proof of it, and then what it means to us in our thinking, in our life, in our fears, in our courage, in the things not seen. That's continued also in verse 3, things that are not made, or that God made the world not out of things which are visible. Beloved, this is for the believer, for the woman of faith, for the man of faith. This is the pull of the unseen, the godly, righteous draw of the unseen. Sinclair Ferguson, if you're familiar with him, he has a daily podcast, and his daily podcast is entitled Things Unseen, taken from this. And what we'll see as we continue through the rest of the chapter is Illustration after illustration after illustration, testimony after testimony after testimony from the lives of these godly ancient men and women and of God's approval of them. I'll grab just two that even tie in to the faith and trust they had in the things not seen. Verse 7, by faith Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Verse 27, by faith Moses left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. And we could even go outside the pages of scripture and what did Jesus say to Thomas when he appeared to him. And if you've been here for a while you may remember I have a great distaste for the For the uh, label Doubting Thomas. Thomas was no more doubting than the rest of the apostles. He was actually a loyal apostle. But in any event, he didn't realize and he did doubt when he first saw Jesus. But after he realized who Jesus was, Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now, when we read these words, very often we would have a first application and thinking that it's applying to us. And to be sure, there's an extended application. We haven't seen the physical Jesus, yet by God's grace and mercy we believe. But you note, Jesus spoke in past tense. Even there, he was setting a foundation of what would be elaborated on and expanded on here in chapter 11. Jesus is speaking back of the men and women of times past prior to his entrance into the sin-stained world who believed without seeing. Beloved, As you think about your invisible God, as you think about your heavenly future, faith is the star by which you must navigate. Faith is a star by which we must steer our lives on this side of eternity. And that's what the Apostle Paul had in his heart and mind when he gave a great word of exhortation and application to the immature church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 4, 18, Paul reminded them, he said, watch this, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Beloved, those are the things that are hoped for. And by the way, in the context of Hebrews, where if you're familiar with Hebrews or you've been here, you know that this uh, pastor's heart is to issue different warnings throughout the time to warn this precious group of Jewish believers who are getting immense pressure and persecution to come back to their human works of salvation, come back to the sacrificial system. And their great warnings the author gives, and beloved, faith, hope, and endurance, encapsulated here, are the exact opposite of drifting away of neglecting so great a salvation, of apostatizing, of falling away, or even, as we read at the end of chapter 10, of shrinking back away from the once-for-all-delivered faith that was given to the fathers and even to this audience and to us as well. So that's a definition of what faith is. In verse 2, we see a description of what faith does. And bottom line, what faith does, does is it approves you to God what faith does is have God give a testimony a witness on your behalf by virtue of faith look at verse 2 he says for by it by faith in other words by faith the men of old gained approval literally it's for in it for in faith men of old gained approval men of old, presbyteroi. Uh, this isn't, he's not talking about Presbyterians. Literally, these are elders. These are the elders, the ancients. And by the way, it is, the word there is masculine, but the beauty is when we look at the rest of chapter 11, he's talking about men and women of old who gained approval, God's approval. Not the world's approval, but God's approval. And in fact, Gained approval, that's the same root word as witness, as testifier, testimony that we see here. Beloved, what he is saying here is the men and women of old, God witnessed on their behalf. They are testified, the specific examples that he will give, that we will see when we embark on the rest of our expositional journey through this seminal chapter. They are testified to in the pages of Scripture, Uh, here in chapter 11, because, we read, they were pleasing to God because they trusted God, because they believed God, because they had faith in what God promised. That's the same way of salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament, under the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. And by the way, this is eternal commendation. The alternative, and there's only one alternative. It is either eternal commendation or eternal condemnation. There's no middle road. There's no third alternative. Either you will be friend, either you will be in the day of judgment commended by Christ, or you'll be condemned without Christ and condemned by Christ. Now, we can ask the question circling back to the subject of faith. You may remember back in Chapter 10, verse 38, where the author of Hebrews quoted one of the epic verses from the Old Testament on faith, Habakkuk 2.4. But the righteous shall live by faith. We can ask the question, and that was the first of the 27 appearances of faith from 10.38 to 12.2. But we can ask the question, and perhaps the audience asks the question, what does it look like to live by faith? What the author does here is he says, well... Let me tell you, now even better, let me show you, let me show you. And the phrase by faith appears 21 times in Hebrew, 20 times in chapter 11. This by faith, that little two-word English phrase is one of the most important statements in the New Testament, and in fact, it's a literary outline and key for us to understand as we embark through chapter 11, by faith, marks the massively impressive roll call that we see here in this chapter. The roll call of faithful men and women from the time even of Adam and Eve. He starts with Abel in verse 4. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. He begins with Abel, then he moves to Enoch and Noah, then Abraham and Sarah, and then Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Moses, and Rahab, the antediluvian superstars of Abel, Enoch, and Noah, the patriarchs, the mighty apostle and giver of the law, Moses, and a harlot, a harlot. I can't wait to get to that passage. Beloved, this is the picture gallery of chapter 11. This is the hall of faith, and what I mean by that is that's God's mercy. None of us are any better off than any harlot or any abortionist or the list can go on. It is God's grace and mercy, his new work, new life he puts inside us that allows us to be here to understand his word. So when we look at this hall of faith, this catalog of spiritual greatness, this testimony after testimony after testimony, a sublime and lyrical encomium of faith, Beloved, it will be a blessing and a joy. And one more kind of right understanding of the original audience. Remember, they're being called to go back to the old what was at the time the Judaistic approach of work salvation sacrifices. And what the author is doing here is he's saying look you are not honoring God. You are not honoring the old covenant. You are not honoring the great men and women of faith of times past by doing this. Don't go back. It's the same way of salvation in the old as in the new. Beloved In the rest of chapter 11, these ancient men and women, these men and women of old are an exposition and living illustrations of the kind of faith that the author just finished chapter 10 with. Again, verses 38 and 39, my righteous one shall live by faith. Those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And it's in living color when we study these. The Exhortation following verses 38 and 39 of chapter 10 is actually given all the way in chapter 12, verse 1. We read it earlier, but again, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness, uh, witnesses surrounding us, let us Also, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. Again, same theme. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And chapter 11 is one giant illustration inserted therein. And beloved, what we will see is the ancients heard the story. They believed the promises, and they lived their lives. They weren't concerned with the verdict of the world. They were concerned solely with the verdict of heaven. And beloved, in these living illustrations, these men and women of faith, the pull of the unseen is powerfully evident. And if you're here, you'll be invited week by week by week to look at them, this great cloud of witnesses, and to learn from them. So that is the nature of faith, the definition of what faith is, and the description of what faith does. And very briefly in verse 3, this is just to dip our toe into the water. We'll do more next week. This is the beginning of faith, not the beginning of your faith, the beginning of faith. Namely, creation is the theater of God's glory in redemption. No one was present in the beginning. All humanity is confronted with a universe already existing, and that's why the author says in verse 3, by faith we. So, by faith Abel, Enoch, by faith Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and so forth. Now, but right at the beginning, by faith we. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible as we consider there's an important element that comes out of verse 3 that further accentuates and helps us understand the significance and the reality of this faith. And to set the stage, I'm going to read a couple quotes from a book called The Devil's Dictionary. It's a satirical dictionary written by American journalist Ambrose Bierce. Ambrose Bierce was a soldier in the Civil War. He was severely wounded. He had a a head wound, and he witnessed just the wickedness and sin and the travesty and tragedy of human combat and war. And he became a cynic. His book was first published as the Cynic's Word Book in 1906, and then in a more comprehensive form as the Devil's Dictionary in 1911. He's got some humorous definitions in here. Love, for example, love, he says, is a noun meaning temporary insanity curable by marriage. I like marriage, don't get me wrong, very, very much. Positive is a verb meaning mistaken at the top of one's voice. And egotist is a person of low taste because they're more interested in themselves rather than in me. How about this one? A lawyer is one skilled in circumvention of the law. It's humorous and satirical. A, a, A doctor is a gentleman who thrives upon disease and dies of health. And by the way, I looked up, he didn't have a definition for engineer, so (laughs) take that word here. But more to the point, this is how he defines, here's the point. He defines faith as such. Faith is belief without evidence in what is told by one who speaks without knowledge of things without parallel. Now, belief without evidence in what is told by one who speaks without knowledge of things without parallel. Now, if that was to describe an evolutionary-based faith, that would be a very good example. But, but he could not be further from the truth of the kind of faith that God talks about in Scripture, that God talked about of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, in Habakkuk 2:4, and all of the New Testament. Look at verse 3. He says, by faith we understand. It's the, same, the word understand is the same word that comes from the root word for mind. Beloved, the faith described here is not a blind faith. It's not a vacuous, unintelligent belief. It's not a blind leap. This is not like the man that fell out of the 40th floor window, and as he was passing by the 19th floor, a secretary overheard him say, Well, so far, so good. It's not that kind of unreasonable, illogical, unfounded faith. The kind of faith that is described here that we understand with our mind. This is not surrender and stop thinking. This is start thinking and surrender. This is surrender and start thinking biblically, rationally, reasonably, and logically. The kind of faith that is described in Scripture that we see worked out in the lives of God's children and lines up with well, certainly, what we empirically observe in the world, but more importantly, what God supernaturally reveals in His inerrant, infallible Word is not taking our brains out and sticking it under the seat. This kind of faith is not merely intellectual, but it is never less than intellectual. And beloved, our faith, your faith, is not wistful longing. It's not subjective feeling, it's an absolute certainty, because it's based on the substantial essence and nature of God's promise. Similar to Ambrose Pierce, another person that was just faced, this is a 20th century German-American poet, novelist, and short story writer, Charles Bukowski. Charles Bukowski uh, wrote many different Poems and short stories based on his kind of view of almost a dystopian 20th century Los Angeles situation. This is what Bukowski wrote. He said this quote, and he's speaking figuratively. He said, I see men assassinated around me every day. I walk through rooms of the dead, streets of the dead, cities of the dead. Men without eyes, men without voices, men with manufactured feelings and standard reactions, men with, watch this, men with newspaper brains, television souls, and high school ideas, end quote. Bukowski passed away. In 1994, at the age of 73, I can't even begin to imagine what he would say on this side of the Internet and social media. But, beloved, and I lay that out by way of contrast, of the sure foundation and substantiation that we have in the Word of God, in the faith that we enjoy, and where does this faith begin? And bottom line in verse 3 is this, friend. You can't have Christ as your Savior. You can't have Christ as your Redeemer if you don't have Christ as your Creator. For the eye of faith, in verse 13, verse 13 Hebrews 11, all these died in faith without receiving their promises, but having seen them. Wait, I, I thought we just heard they what he's saying there is they didn't see them with their optical eyes they saw them with eyes of faith for the eye of faith beloved the future can't be separated from the past the end is already in the beginning that's why he ties in the words of god creating the world by his word here in verse 3 by the word of god this is the creative Fiat of God. Genesis 1, verse 3, God said, Let there be light. Seven times in Genesis chapter 1, you have the word, let there be, or some equivalent thereof. This is creation being the foundation of everything that follows. If you were here two weeks ago for our Christmas message, you may remember out of God's promise of a son that would come to the woman in Genesis 3:15, the account of the fall in Genesis 3 triggers the whole history of redemption that concerns the rest of the Old and the New Testament. And the fall comes after creation. So, beloved, our faith in creation is at the foundation and center of who we are, and it is the beginning of faith. And by the way, every man and woman has some faith system around the origin of the cosmos. Evolution is also a fault-based excuse me, it is false, but it's a faith-based system. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, scientific or empirical about it. Martin Luther said, quote, a lie is like a snowball. The further you roll it, the bigger it becomes. And the lie of evolution is one of the biggest snowballs of all. Every man's belief, every woman's belief in the origin of the cosmos is based on faith. You can either have a faith that is reasonable, rational, and logical, as described here by the author of Hebrews, or the alternative is a faith that is irrational, illogical, and unreasonable. And I like what John MacArthur said. He said, if you don't accept the literal account of Genesis 1 through 11, when do you start believing in the literal account of any part of Scripture? Verse 6 of Hebrews 11 in conclusion, and some of you may be thinking somewhat cynically, you know, whenever a preacher says inclusion, in uh, conclusion, I think, well, he's a well-meaning soul, but he's not very literal when it comes to that part. But actually, I am somewhat literal here. <clears throat> in conclusion, Hebrews eleven six: Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who. Who seek Him. Beloved, dear friend, this matter of faith is not a marginal issue. It's not something that we can push to the corner. It is eternally essential to where you and I will spend eternity. It is of pressing importance in this moment, and it sets the stage well for us now to approach the table of communion where we remember the great sacrifice and price that Christ paid on our behalf, to secure our eternity with him forever and ever in heaven, based upon faith. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the counsel of your word. We thank you, Lord God, for the clear teaching. Lord, you are holy. We are born sinners we are in need of a savior and we are saved by faith alone in you lord jesus alone thank you for the gift of salvation thank you for every lord's day where we gather together thank you for a lord's day like today when we come to the communion table and remember the great price you paid on our behalf dear god be glorified in all that we do it is for your glory and for your honor lord jesus that we pray and that we now do this thing Amen. Amen.